Welcome to the She Recovers podcast. This podcast is recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Tewa people. I am Lisa Wall of Mission Programs and Community Care here at She Recovers, and I am honored to share a little bit of our history with you today. The She Recovers story began in 2011 as a passion project initiated by a recovering duo, a mother, Don Nickel, and her daughter, Taryn Strong who both desired to normalize what it meant to be a woman in recovery and inspire those seeking healing from substance use disorders and trauma to find and follow individualized pathways and patchworks of recovery. Today, She Recovers Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit public charity and a global grassroots movement serving more than 325,000 women and non-binary individuals in or seeking recovery from a myriad of life challenges, including trauma, mental health issues, and substance use. Our mission is to redefine recovery, inspire hope, end stigma, and empower women to increase their recovery capital, heal themselves, and help other women to do the same. There is no greater source of inspiration or influence than a woman in recovery, and our story is proof. She Recovers believes that we are all recovering from something, and here on the podcast, we examine the healing power of connection and intentional living, as well as what happens in our lives when we put down our past stories and pick up our soul's true purpose. We know that if you're tuning in today, you too envision a world where all women in or seeking recovery are celebrated, supported, and deemed essential to healthy communities. A world where no one has to recover alone. We believe the following guest story will inspire you to write a new chapter in your recovery story. I hope you find connection, support, and empowerment in this week's episode. It is an honor to share it with you. Welcome back to the She Recovers podcast. We're happy to have you back today, and we're very excited about this conversation between our podcast host, Dr. Tiffany, and Dr. Wendy Dean, who specializes in the topic of moral injury. Dr. Dean is the author of If I Betray These Words, Moral Injury in Medicine and Why It's So Hard for Clinicians to Put Patients First, as well as the host of the Moral Matters podcast. They dive into what exactly moral injury is, how it presents in the healthcare field, and how people can recover from it. We're so excited for you to listen. Dr. Wendy Dean is our guest, and Dr. Dean left clinical medicine when generating revenue crowded out the patient-centered priorities of her practice. Her focus since has been on finding innovative ways to make medicine better for both parties and physicians through technology, ethics, and systems change. Dr. Dean practiced for 15 years as an emergency room physician and then as a psychiatrist. After leaving clinical practice, she spent eight years in leadership positions overseeing medical research, funding for the U.S. Army, and as a senior executive at a large nonprofit in Washington, D.C., supporting novel strategies to restore form, function, and appearance to ill and injured service members. She turned her full attention to addressing moral injury in 2019. Dr. Dean is a regular contributor to Medscape's Business Medicine, Business of Medicine, blogs on psychology today, and continues to work in innovative fields with NASA. That's impressive, Dr. Dean. The American Society of Reconstructive Transplantation, Transplantation and the Transplant Ethics and Policy Working Group at New York University Langone Medical Center. Your new book, If I Betray These Words, looks really good, and I want to talk with you about that today. Um, I've been enjoying your podcast, and I think what would be a great place to start, if you don't mind, is if you tell me and the people who listen to this podcast every week a little bit about how you, the human being, Wendy Dean, ended up um, really being a champion for the conversation around moral injury, as opposed to burnout and really getting honest about what's happening in our fields of medicine and health across all domains of health. That's an, it's an interesting story, and it's not one that I did intentionally. So I like to say that I didn't volunteer for this. I got conscripted. Mm -hmm. And in part, it's because I had this experience as a family member watching my mother and my husband getting care and seeing that the folks who were taking care of her were struggling with their own challenges. 
and and it, it it was it was getting in the way of their providing the kind of care that they wanted to provide. And as I thought about that, and as I thought about how I used to think that when I struggled in healthcare, I could compartmentalize it and put it away, and my and my patients didn't experience it. And in fact, being on the other side of it, I realized, oh, hang on, it really does impact patients. What are we going to be able to do with that? Like, like what is behind that? And what do we do with that? And I ended up asking all of the all of the clinicians that I was working with across the country um, with this research funding oversight with the army, if they were, you know, what their experience was. And was it burnout? And most of them would say to me, I love my patients. I love what I do for work. You know, I, I love the medicine that I practice. What I don't love is everything that goes around it. Yeah. And and so I, I would say to them, oh, so are you burned out? And they would also say, almost to a one, well, I guess so. It, it doesn't really it doesn't really land right with me, but I guess so, because I don't have better language for it. It's interesting how systems want us to think that it's a particular thing when in reality it's the system that's making us sick. It's not an internal issue of burnout. Um, and I, I, I shared this with you in our email thread that I've been in behavioral health for 20 years and I have found myself at different points thinking, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And it had nothing to do with the people in front of me. It had everything to do with the pressure of billing, the churn, um, how quickly the system needed us to move. And I wonder, can you define for us what moral injury is? Because this is, I think this is a pretty new concept for a lot of people who do this kind of work. Sure. And then I'd love if we talked about the relationship with burnout. Yeah. So... Moral injury was initially defined in the context of soldiers coming back from combat, Vietnam, and particularly the Vietnam War. So Jonathan Shea originally defined it as betrayal by a legitimate authority in a high-stakes situation. And it was a condition that required all three of those things, betrayal, a legitimate authority, and, and high-stakes situation. Brett Litz... And William Nash expanded on that concept about a decade and a half later, and they said it's perpetrating, bearing witness to, or learning about acts that transgress deeply held moral beliefs or expectations. Mm -hmm. And in healthcare, those deeply held beliefs and expectations are the oaths that we took to put our patients first, whether explicit or implicit. So... We And we tend to think about those two definitions, not as separate things, but as connected to each other as sort of a stimulus and response. So you perceive a betrayal and it may not be an egregious one. It may be that somebody is just subtly undermining what you're doing as a clinician, Mm -hmm. but you perceive that betrayal and you have two choices. You can push back and stand up and and have less of a risk of moral injury, or you can acquiesce to that betrayal and transgress your deeply held moral beliefs and put yourself at greater risk for moral injury. Now, I want to be crystal clear here that I'm not saying that we have a free choice to do those things, because sometimes we have bills to pay, mortgages to pay, kids to feed, and and we don't we can't uproot everything and move to a new city and get a new job. So sometimes the decision is I need to keep my job and acquiesce. But it is there is a moment when you can you can go down one of those two paths. Yeah. Yeah, and she recovers is all about believing that all people are have the opportunity to heal from something. And do you think that there, well, I have two questions after you shared those things. One is, do you think that we can heal from moral injury? And the, and the second question is, how is this different from secondary trauma? 
because what I'm hearing really leans into traumatic experience, especially by systems, um, which is deeply influenced by social determinants of health and other sociopolitical things. So I'm sorry I threw two questions at you, but I'd like to hear from you on both things. Can we <laughs> heal from these injuries, these moral injuries that we sort of get pigeonholed into um, because of the kind of culture we live in? Moral injury happens. So can we heal from it? That's my first question. Yeah. And the second question is for you, Dr. Dean, how do you see this as being different than secondary trauma or right. uh, trauma perpetrated by a system or institution? So I, I think um, regarding the first one, absolutely, we can we can heal from it. And, and I want to be clear that typically what we talk about is not the the individual betrayal of my personal beliefs, but in the context of a professional role. Mm -hmm. Right. So the betrayal of that oath that I took as a healthcare, as a clinician to put my patients first, it, it, it may align with my religious beliefs or my other personal beliefs. But what we really talk about is because this is a work environment in the context of that professional role. I do think we can heal from it, but the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that it exists mm -hmm. and for everybody to know that we all face these moral dilemmas. It is not, or uh, these moral um, experiences. And, and part of what we need to do is be prepared for those and understand how it could impact us. And understand that we have that ability to stand up and speak out and reduce our risk. Um, and, and, and that then means that we prepare ourselves to do that in a safe way. Which I acknowledge is also quite challenging in our corporatized healthcare system. It is. Right. So, so that's, um, that's the answer to the first question. To the second question, um, some of the evidence that we're seeing coming out of the UK um, shows that they are distinct entities, that, that burnout and moral injury and second, second victim syndrome or, or experiences are separate entities. They can influence each other, um, but they aren't the same thing, nor is it the same as depression. Well, I'm so excited to deconstruct all these with you. <laughs> um, do you have personal experience that led you to the construct of moral injury and feeling like it was too big to solve or feeling like you had to speak out? Do you have a story there? I spent the early part of my career which I only realized in retrospect, I spent the early part of my career trying to find a, a model of care that would allow me to take, to treat patients the way I believed that they deserved and that was best for them. Mm -hmm. And in a way that was sustainable for me. So I was a psychiatrist and typically psychiatrists are in a role of being a prescriber the way I trained my experience of patient care was that sometimes that was the right thing to do. And sometimes it was better for the patient, more efficacious. It led to a quicker outcome for the, for the prescriber to also be the therapist. That's right. To be right. To be doing both together. And, but the challenge as a psychiatrist is you don't get paid that way. <laughs> right. right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you have the overhead of a psychiatrist and you don't get paid at the rate of a psychiatrist. So it just ended up being an economic model that did not work. Um, and I, I had a choice to make. Either I would acquiesce and become the prescriber or I would push back. And what I did was I pushed back and tried to find, you, you know, tried every permutation I could think of to find a place and a way where I could practice in that way. Mm. Um, and ultimately, I couldn't. Mm. And I ended up deciding that I would rather find another way to use my MD than to give care that I 
didn't believe in 100%. That's powerful. And I'm not sure many of us in the field, in behavioral health in particular, and probably in medicine, I'm not, I don't work in medical, I work in behavioral health, although I think they're the same a lot of the time. I don't know that many of us can actually say, I choose what's right. I choose to do, I choose to stand by what my my soul is calling me to do, which is care about human beings, instead of pushing forward with this model that's leading me to fatigue. And you you, ra- you raised a, a question or a concept around the difference between moral injury and burnout. And you said you wanted to explore that a little further. Would you like to take a few minutes and do that now? Sure. And by the way, um, I'm lucky to have a husband who enjoys his job. Yeah. <laughs> so I could. So I, I, I recognized that I had the luxury of making that choice and taking a couple of months to decide where I was going next. So I, I'm going to be perfectly upfront. Yeah. And what a privilege, right? To be partnered Correct. and partnered with someone who likes what they do and makes enough money that we can pause and figure right. it out. That's a big deal. And we also we also made I mean, we also made life choices so that we could so that we could do that. Yeah. Um, anyway, the, when we look, a lot of people will hear when we're talking about moral injury, that it's not about burnout, it's about moral injury. And that is not the way I look at it. Okay. The way I look at it is that the two are separate entities. Um, and by the way, there's plenty of distress to go around. Nobody right. needs a corner on that market. Right. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, you know, let's let's say yes. And yeah. And let's bring more people into this into this um, place of healing. So burnout. I recognize that that um, there's a lot of conversation about it being systems issues. And yes, it yes, it is systems issues. There is administrative burden that could be reduced. There are issues with the EHR that take too much time and could be streamlined. There are regulations that need to go away. Yes, 100%. There are systems issues that lead to burnout that are just, they simply lead to demand demand resource mismatch. Mm-hmm. I think of those as the operational issues that need to be addressed, that lead to burnout. Demand, resource mismatch. On the on the moral injury side, where we're talking about a betrayal that, by the way, is often unintentional. I don't think anybody sets out any day to betray the people who work for them. I think they, too, have forced choices. Um, and they're trying to do their level best. But, they're, but sometimes there are constraints outside of their control as well. Yep. So, but, but in the end... There is this perception that I am being undermined or I'm not free to do my job as I was trained to do. That sets up a relational challenge in healthcare. So we have the operational side, which is just we don't have systems that are working smoothly. And then we have the relational side, which is we don't have we don't have a trustworthy system in which to work. That is and, powerful. Sorry. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so so we need to do both. It's yes and. Yes, it is yes and. And why do you think it's so hard for us in this culture, in this community, in this time to peel back the layers on this? Why aren't we, why don't more people know about this? Um, if you look at, <laughs> so my previous job working with um, the Army was doing research funding oversight, um, developing innovative technologies. So I learned a lot about product development. Mm -hmm. And when you look at adoption of new ideas or new technology, it it takes about a generation. Hmm. When you look at burnout, it started in the mid-70s. We really started to talk about it in earnest in the late 90s, early 2000s. So... Moral injury has been accelerated by the pandemic, um, which I have very mixed feelings about. Um, but 
it is not unexpected that it's taking a little bit of time for that uptake to happen and for people to learn about it. So we spent the first two to three years of the work that we were doing entirely about raising awareness and educating people about what this new concept is. And we're, we're now in the last year and a half or two years starting to look at what the solutions might be. Hmm. But that is a very expected trajectory. It's also, you know, we're also building the, the research, the data that we need to be, to back up these concepts. But it's been five years. It's only been five years, which is not a long time. It's not a long time. That's, that's like baby, baby construct emergence. That's the very beginning. Right. And so um, I have so many questions about your military experience. Um, and by the way, I didn't. You were, I didn't wear the uniform. Okay. I was a. I was a civilian. I don't love that we are. Can we are in our third opioid crisis as a country, and then we had the public health emergency with COVID overlaid on top of that. But can you talk about how those two things? have connected and danced around together. And I suppose it's not just the opioid crisis, but also the amphetamine crisis that then tags on to the back of all opiate crisis, right? Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in that. Um, That is, there are people who are so much more well-informed about that. And honestly, I read a brilliant book, The Least of Us, uh huh. By Sam Quinones, his follow-on to his initial um, book, and and I would I would direct anyone to that book, um, along with a very long laundry list of other books. Um, I I do think there is something about I think there's something about um, a sense of disempowerment and hopelessness that's driving that pandemic yeah that is that feels familiar to what i talk about with moral injury um but i'm sure that i can't talk really intelligently about how they're the similarities and connections between the two Mm -hmm. um is it possible though that the the multiple issues societal cultural issues um just taking the opioid crisis and COVID, because you've mentioned COVID and how that impacted everyone and specifically the issue issue of moral injury. Are they compounded and do they make it harder on providers and system? I mean, I think the answer is yes, but can you tell us a little more about that? Oh, you mean COVID and moral injury? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. So, (laughs) yes. Um, So we're clear that this did not start with COVID. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think what happened during the pandemic is that all of the things, all of the things that were everyday annoyances before, the chronic short staffing, the just-in-time supply chains, the, the, you know, re- making sure that every square foot of space made the right ROI. Yeah. All of those things were annoyances every day. And then when you, when the, pandemic hit those annoyances became potentially catastrophic right when you don't have enough staff to take care of critically ill patients when you, when when you have a just in time supply chain that oh by the way if you ask any logis- logistician those just in time supply chains reliably fail in a crisis so whoops yeah. We've allowed healthcare, right? <laughs> We've allowed healthcare to rely on just in time supply chains. Maybe that wasn't a great idea. Right. It seems like the the standard operating procedure for how these system works, it was designed to fail in the worst possible moment. It was designed it was designed based on systems that are not crisis based. Mhm. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the management principles come from somewhere like a car manufacturer. Car manufacturers don't typically have crises, right? Um, so they're not asked, they're not asking this system to consistently um, function and function at a very high level through a crisis. 
in healthcare, we've been asking it to do that for way too long. We've been running it way too hot. And the only reason it's surviving is because of what Danielle Offrey described in her New York Times opinion piece in 2018 as the the altruism and the goodwill of the healthcare workforce. Mm-hmm. Because doctors and nurses and every other clinician and frankly, most people in healthcare will not let the patients suffer as a result of systems issues. Mm-hmm. We'll take that on ourselves instead. And so I think I heard you say in one of your podcasts that looking at uh, clinicians in the field during the time of COVID, they actually found more purpose and their hearts came forward. But that didn't mean they didn't experience significant moral injury during that time, right? Right. So they, so about 25% felt like this was what I went into this field for. This is my moment. Mm-hmm. Um, to serve and and bring it. I I have now I I do have purpose. You know I, I had purpose before, but this is the peak of what I came here to do. Um, it doesn't mean that they didn't struggle. That you know I I talked to one ER physician the other day who herself was faced with deciding who got a ventilator. That's right. And two two years later she left the field. Because she said I I just can't I can't come to rights with this. Um and my hospital just wants to get back to business as usual and I have healing to do and I can't do that with the situation that we're in. Hello, Lisa here. I hope this episode of the She Recovers podcast is resonating with you. I just wanted to pop in to say that sometimes we may need recovery support that goes beyond listening to an inspiring resource like this podcast, and that's okay. I know firsthand how helpful it can be to have additional support from folks who have earned the right to hear my story, and you deserve to have this dedicated support too. That's why She Recovers has curated a directory of trusted resources that align with our intentions and guiding principles. In this directory, you will find treatment providers, therapists, recovery-focused resources, and She Recovers certified professionals that we like, know, and trust to guide you on your healing journey. Visit www.sherecovers.org and click on the resources tab to learn more. How do we help these folks recover? Like part of She Recovers is really getting into some of these bigger things. And I I personally think we're going to see the psychological and economic effects and the moral injury effects uh, of COVID for decades and the restructuring of the brain as a result of this longstanding issue. How do we help people move from the injury to what's next for them? I think one of the the best parts, one of the reasons that people really resonate with moral injury is because it says to them, this isn't about you. It's not a deficit. It, it's not a vulnerability in you. It's not a deficit in you. You are tough enough. And by the way, we know that clinicians physicians in particular, but I would extend this to nurses and everybody else who works in healthcare mm-hmm. are significantly more resilient than the average employed population. So asking them to be more resilient individually, um, maybe like bringing Coles to Newcastle. Right. Right. So <laughs> right? Let's maybe we do don't that. need to do more of that. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> um, and, and what, what I think, so that's the first thing. And I, I can't tell you how healing it is at least from what I've seen, for people to have language for this, to actually say, oh, that thing that I've never been able to name, I can now name. It makes me feel less alone, especially when other people name it as well. And to know that it's not about me is really a huge relief. So I will say that um, my co-founder, Simon Talbot, and I had this aha moment when we were talking at one point years ago, and a couple of years before we wrote our article, 
And we realized that a psychiatrist and a plastic surgeon who are sort of, you know, arguably at the opposite ends of the spectrum of healthcare sure. yep. had had the same experience of being a physician in medicine. And, and we were like, Oh, hang on, hang on. If that's true for both of us, maybe it's not about us. Right. That's revolutionary. When we find out we right. are not terminally unique in our suffering right. and there is actually a large community of people that we can relate to. That reflection and that witnessing and that shared lived experience can change everything. Right. And what was interesting was when we brought this language, we were just kind of playing around with the idea and we brought the language to one of the in-person meetings that we had had that we had with this um, research funding. And we we shared it with a few people and it was instantaneous. Mm -hmm. They were like, oh, that's it. That's it. <laughs> it it must have been this really powerful moment for you and Dr. Talbot to know, to just know that your work right now is critically important to this entire, not just this workforce. You know, I think in some of your writing, you talk about how moral injury impacts veterans. And you've said that today. It can impact doctors and um, first responders, EMS folks. Who else is at risk? I mean, and and I wonder if these this other category might not have the same protective factors or resiliencies that the other folks that you've already talked about have. Yeah. So we have heard from veterinarians, teachers, mm. public defenders. I heard from someone who worked for the massive consulting agency, McKinsey, who said he left, didn't know why, didn't have the language. And in retrospect, when he read my piece, said that's what it was. It, it was moral injury. Yeah. I was in uh, state government at the time that COVID hit. And my job was to make sure that all the substance use and mental health services stayed open and functional. Mm. And... I can't speak for other states. I can speak for this state of New Mexico to say they did a really good job and they worked really closely by taking care of providers, provider agencies and every individual staff person. However, those large scale systems can ask us to do things that aren't that great for us. And so I think that's part of the reason I ended up leaving and I didn't have words for it until I read your work and listened to your podcasts with Dr. Talbot. And I just want to express gratitude um, because I wondered, oh, like, why am I not that? Why am I not good at this? What's wrong with me? What's going on with my heart? What's going on with my brain? Why is it my brain doing the right thing? Turns out maybe my brain was doing the right thing. Um, but the system couldn't allow me to keep doing what the right thing was. Right. <laughs> right. And, I, you know, I think there are some times when systems themselves have constraints that we don't acknowledge openly, mm -hmm. that we don't have conversations about. And that's that's also one of the paths to healing is to be able for, for all of us to say, you know what, we need to talk openly about these challenges that we're facing within the system. It may be that there's not enough funding. So let's have a conversation with that as a, as a society. Let's have a conversation about that mm -hmm. as a society and wrestle with that and, and, you know, wrestle it to the ground. And then we all know this is what we've decided and this is how it will go. And unfortunately, it may not be a choice that you want to live with or work with. Sure. Which allows you then to make the choice of, I'm going to look elsewhere or I'm, I'm going to make the active choice to stay because I don't have another choice right? and I'm going to find another way to, to be okay with it or to try to change it from within. Do you think that moral injury or not? Do you think, how would you describe how moral injury impacts communities of color and more impoverished communities? So I want to be careful about how we define moral injury. Okay. 
right? If we go back to the definition again, it's a betrayal by legitimate authority in a high stakes situation. Mm-hmm. So uh, there, there are situations where that would occur, but um, I, I want to be careful about not making blanket statements about a population that suffers from moral injury, right? What we do know is that those, that those who are disempowered have a higher risk of moral injury, mm-hmm. of experiencing moral injury. So being part of a minority group or identifying in an oppressed class could increase the likelihood that you would have moral injury? That's a question I'm asking. Correct. Okay. It could. It could. I, it could. I just think it's... And I mean, and that, and that gets complicated. Yeah, it gets complicated by the fact that um, if you have experienced betrayals in the past, you may be more likely to ex- to have a betrayal schema. And so you're going to see betrayal where it may or may not exist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not saying that we should dismiss someone's experience, but we need to be very careful about the definitions. Um, and, and I'm, I'm really, I'm a little bit worried that we're going to, that moral injury is going to become a new buzzword and we're going to start using it as burnout has been become colloquialized? I hope not. I hope that we can tailor the conversation um, and empower the conversation yeah. in the right way. I I have to ask, too, um, is, well, maybe I don't have to ask, but I'm going to ask because I'm nosy. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> this ahead. is how my brain works. Um, how is moral injury different than or the same as somebody saying, I won't talk about abortion because it's against my my value set or I will talk about it because it's within my value set. I'm curious how this construct touches or does not con- connect to some of that controversial stuff that's out in our world right now. Right. So I think we need to go back Again, you know, I'm going to I'm going to keep returning to the definitions. Good, good. And it's it's <laughs> betrayal in a, in a high stakes situation. Right. Um, yes, abortion can be a high stakes situation, but the thought of abortion is not a high stakes situation. Uh-huh. And also. Uh, moral injury implies that you ha- you've experienced this condition or this these these challenges to the extent that. You you almost wonder if you can continue to be the good person you thought of yourself as. Mm. So it, there's a bit of disorientation uh-huh. that happens with it. Um, so, for example, I have had people say to me, if I continue to work in this health system, I don't know if I can still think of myself as the doctor I hoped I would be. Because I feel like I'm complicit in in delivering care that's not what I would hope it would be. What you're talking about is so big, and I feel like there's so many tentacles attached to it. Could you share a little bit about, in your military experience, as a civilian um, person within that system, how did this play out? And and I have to say, I'm a, I'm a child of a 100% disabled uh, military veteran, and... I'm not sure that we got good care. However, my partner's family has had excellent care. And um, I wonder in that system, can we get it right? Because the, you know, the VA, the military system, it's incredibly complex and it gets a lot of things right. So can you speak to moral injury in that particular system a little bit? I was working on product development to restore form function and appearance to folks who were catastrophically wounded in battle. Uh-huh. So I was looking at regenerative, regenerative medicine techniques and hand and face transplants. Wow. Um, so it put me in contact with some of the military healthcare facilities, but I didn't actually practice in them and don't have the expertise to speak to what their challenges are or how, how well they're doing or, or not. Okay. That's okay. I, I'm so curious. I, this is the part that gets me in trouble 
<laughs> is that I well, love so to I just think, be curious. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, um, I have had physicians from each of those systems say to me, um, you know, I struggle with certain aspects of it. They don't have the same challenges with, for example, um, private payer health care, uh-huh. health insurance, right? So they don't have those struggles. And in the military, especially, the patient is it, it doesn't want typically, right? Because the whole point of medicine in the in the military is to put that wounded service member back into a position of being ready to go into conflict. Mm-hmm. Right, a, a ready medical force, right, and a medically ready force. Um, so, so the, the the purpose of of medicine in the military is slightly different, and may act against the same level of moral injury. But that's all spe- that's speculation. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your speculation. I would love to have another conversation with you just about that. Um, I wonder, I know She Recovers has support for healthcare and allied professionals. There's a community, a support group, and we really focus on storytelling, and we're going to be doing that in Chicago this fall. Are you aware of any other supports for folks in healthcare settings um, who are experiencing moral injury or other, what's the word? Injury, <laughs> that distress. Might, that, yeah, distress that might need community. So there are a lot of a lot of healthcare systems that are putting in place um, peer support and true peer support, meaning uh, like like licensees. Uh huh. Um, there are some that are completely informal, or um, and are ad hoc, meaning. When, when an event happens, you can reach out at the moment and get a, a peer. You don't have to, you're not buddied up in perpetuity. Um, they're not all addressing specifically moral injury. They're addressing all of the challenges. And hopefully with, um, with, with mentorship that helps folks learn how to speak up in a safe way in that environment. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. I think it does. And I, I feel like everyone needs to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like if you're a doctor, you should know Dr. (laughs) Dean and Dr. Talbot. Um, And I know that they folks can connect with you on LinkedIn through moral injury of healthcare and the same on Facebook. And I know your podcast is fixmoralinjury.org forward slash podcast, right? It's um, so the podcast is called Moral Matters. Moral Matters, thank you. And and if you go on uh, Twitter, we're at at Fix Moral Injury. Okay. And then our website is fixmoralinjury.org. And I've been really grateful for your YouTube videos as well. Um, the difference between burnout and moral injury, I think that's really critical. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your book and where they can get it, so that we don't miss an opportunity sure. for folks to learn more about this and support healthcare workers in all of our communities? Yeah. So the um, by the way, the a book is was never on my bucket list. <laughs> I don't think anybody I... decides they want to write a book. <laughs> I don't think they. Oh know. boy. <laughs> Yeah, you know, there are some folks who really want to, and I, I was really clear that nope, I'm good. <laughs> um, but so, um, this book, and the reason the reason we wrote it, I wrote it with Simon, and the reason we wrote it is because we really feel like it's important not just for clinicians to have and to see themselves in this book, but for our patients to understand, because there's a veil, there's there's this veil, um, you know that there's a curtain that's up and, and clinicians are on one side and patients are on the other. It's really hard to get a window into that world. My parents never even understood what I did. Right. So, um, it's really hard to, unless you've been through it to understand what it's like and to understand then how betraying your oath might be such a, might be such a blow. Mm-hmm. And so we wrote, I wrote it as narrative nonfiction, which means it's told in stories. Mm -hmm. It has 
history of how we got here woven through it. Um, but the point was to tell it as a story because that's that's how we learn best and that's how we remember best. Um, and and it's so it's stories of uh, 10 different clinicians, how they faced what, what their moral injury looked like, um, why they were set up in that way, you know, sort of quote unquote set up, why the healthcare system was the way it was and caused that particular kind of moral injury or that was that driver of moral injury. And then what they did with it. And some of them stood up and pushed back and some of them didn't have that option. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think the storytelling is the most powerful thing. And I'm really glad you wrote the book because I think people witnessing these 10 stories is how we begin the deep healing. Every single person has a doctor. Every single person knows a nurse. Every single person has to deal with EMS at one time or another. Every single person deals with a psychiatrist or knows someone who's dealing with a psychiatrist. It turns out all these people are just humans. These are just human beings with hearts and souls who happen to have gone to school for a really long time. (laughs) And, you know, we don't end up in these positions um, without our hearts or without, uh, without being driven by what our purpose is. Um, what is something that you would like everybody to know about moral injury, about you, about what to do next? How do we take people into hope around this? I couldn't do this work if I wasn't optimistic about being able to change it. Mm -hmm. The other, the other thing is that a lot of clinicians, although they may be distressed, although they may be struggling, they are also almost every one of them said, I love my patients. I love the medicine I practice. Um, I, I, this was the only thing I could imagine doing. And I, I, I just want to get back to being able to be a really good doctor. Mm. Like that's what I want to do. And so I think if we can, if we all acknowledge what's happening, how it's happening, and then work together towards better, I think there's, there's a possibility for change. I will also say that I have spoken to a lot of executives who feel the same. They went into healthcare specifically because they didn't want to be in medicine. They didn't want to be in nursing, but they wanted to be part of healing. And so they're driven to do this as well by sort of that calling. Um, And they experienced their own moral injury. Yeah. My heart goes out to all the folks at any level in these systems and two things are coming up for me. One is Ram Dass's book, How Can I Help?, which talks about the the dismantling of the hierarchy in medical and, and medical modeled systems where we're all just actually humans who need to tell each other our stories so that we can help each other be, be well or be better. Um, and the other thing that is coming into mind is something I say all the time, which is more love, not less. Like your doctors our nurses, all these people in these systems, they need more love from all of us. <laughs> like, we need to play nice with these folks. Um, yeah. And I think it's a misguided idea to think that they're, that they're somehow superheroes who, who are not experiencing the same distress that we're all experiencing out here in the non-medical field world. Right. Mm-hmm. I, uh, right. I have a I have a problem with calling them heroes and healthcare okay, heroes. <laughs> um, what they do is heroic. It is everyday heroics. I struggle with calling clinicians healthcare heroes. I think um, what they do every day is heroic. But when we call them heroes, we take away their ability to be human. Uh-huh. We take away their their ability to be vulnerable. And I think that is that doesn't give them the opportunity to feel and to heal and and to be to connect with their patients. 
in that very human way. I thank you so much because I think um, I did exactly the thing I didn't want to do, which is non-humanize the people who are doing this work who are absolutely human. So thank you for that um, check-in. And is there anything else you want our listeners to know? Is there anything you want She Recovers to do in response to this new information? It's new information for me. Um, And I read a lot, so I'm going to assume there are a lot of our listeners who don't know much about moral injury. Yeah, so what I'd really love people, I would ask them to be respectful of how hard healthcare is right now, and also to do the human thing in return and just check in Mm -hmm. or just, just acknowledge if you've been waiting for an hour in the waiting room, your clinician is probably not happy about that either. And to, and to just acknowledge, seems like you've had a bad day or seems like it's been a tough day. They have no idea how far that can go. I really appreciate that. Just a little bit of compassion, a little bit of gentleness and a little bit of humanity. Nobody likes stuff to not work very well, including the people who are delivering said stuff, right? Right. Okay. Well, Dr. Dean, anything else? No, thank you so much for, for your interest in this. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with She Recovers. Thank you for letting me get to know you. And uh, I would love to see you in Chicago at our conference. If you have time in the fall to join us in September. All right. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Welcome to the She Recovers podcast. This podcast is recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Tewa people. I am Lisa Wall of Mission Programs and Community Care here at She Recovers, and I am honored to share a little bit of our history with you today. The She Recovers story began in 2011 as a passion project initiated by a recovering duo, a mother, Don Nickel, and her daughter, Taryn Strong who both desired to normalize what it meant to be a woman in recovery and inspire those seeking healing from substance use disorders and trauma to find and follow individualized pathways and patchworks of recovery. Today, She Recovers Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit public charity and a global grassroots movement serving more than 325,000 women and non-binary individuals in or seeking recovery from a myriad of life challenges, including trauma, mental health issues, and substance use. Our mission is to redefine recovery, inspire hope, end stigma, and empower women to increase their recovery capital, heal themselves, and help other women to do the same. There is no greater source of inspiration or influence than a woman in recovery, and our story is proof. She Recovers believes that we are all recovering from something, and here on the podcast, we examine the healing power of connection and intentional living, as well as what happens in our lives when we put down our past stories and pick up our soul's true purpose. We know that if you're tuning in today, you too envision a world where all women in or seeking recovery are celebrated, supported, and deemed essential to healthy communities. A world where no one has to recover alone. We believe the following guest story will inspire you to write a new chapter in your recovery story. I hope you find connection, support, and empowerment in this week's episode. It is an honor to share it with you.